0: Well, good morning, church. So glad to see you all here as we're in the house of God and the music has touched our hearts and we are prepared to hear his message. And as you know, we bow before the Holy Spirit and ask that the words that we use are his words, not the words of a man, but the words really anointed by the heart of God. Uh, And so, you know, I've been on this sermon series about lessons from the early church. What can we learn from the early church in the first century? What lessons does God have for us today as he led that church and really led it in such a powerful way, uh, as we see that it was led by the Holy Spirit? Well, today, as that church really progressed and we've studied that following Pentecost, there was nothing but an incredible rising of that church as they had reached out to the Jewish uh, people in Jerusalem. 5,000 people had come to faith within a short period of time. And even though there was persecution and suffering, uh, even though Satan had done his best to have the religious elites move against the leaders of the church, they would not be stopped. They would not be stopped, and that church continued to push out. And so uh, what's going to happen today is Satan is going to change his tactics. Satan is now going to move inside the church. And this will be a move that will take place not just then, but over the centuries as Satan will learn that the best way to destroy the church is from within the church. And that the external suffering and persecution really doesn't have anywhere near of the impact that the internal obstruction of God's will does And so we're going to study that today. And so God had blessed the early church in a mighty way, an incredibly mighty way. The power of the Holy Spirit was evident in a, in a magnificent way as the church really continued to grow. But here is the point. The church is composed of human beings. And even as human beings are saved and brought to God, they are still sinning machines. They may be convicted by the Holy Spirit, but they are still sinning machines. And so sin would enter the church. Now, the amazing thing about the Bible is that the Bible is not like other fairy tale books, where the heroes in fairy tale books are always elevated and we never see their warts. But the Bible paints the pictures of our heroes with all their warts, Uh, And we can see that we saw it with Moses as his righteous defiance of Pharaoh was magnificent uh, as he stood out for the people of God. And yet when he sinned, when he didn't listen to God, when God told him to speak to the rock, not to strike the rock, and instead he struck the rock, Moses sinned and would be barred from entering the promised land. Likewise with David, and we see all these glorious episodes in the life of David as God elevated him. Even to the point where David would be within the very lineage of Jesus Christ. And yet, despite all of those great things, David would sin with Bathsheba. He would commit not only adultery, but he would commit murder. And David would be punished for that. He would not write a psalm for over a year Uh, And we know in Psalm 51 as he begged God to forgive him, and God did forgive him. But here's an interesting note that I've studied. David only lived to the age of 70, which was an extremely short period of time in the biblical period. And so I believe that God called David home, and part of that was uh, a recompense for some of the things that evil had taken place there in the heart of David. And so Satan has determined he cannot thwart the church from external purposes, and so now he will try to oppose the church from the inside, and he will be successful. And he will be successful not just in the first century church, but he will be successful over the centuries. As you will see, church after church after church fall due to factions, fall due to internal opposition. As Satan puts his tentacles within the church. Paul expressed his intense concern, intense concern for the church when he urged the Romans to quote, I urge you brothers and sisters to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of God's people. The important thing to understand this, the important thing to understand that, how easy it is for good churches to go awry. And so Paul also lamented that the Galatians were so quickly deserting him, uh, who, had, who called them by the grace of Christ uh, for a different gospel, distorting the very gospel of Christ. The following concise passage now forms the positive backdrop of this first century church story in which the negative portrait of sin in the church is portrayed. And you can look on the boards as we cite to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that were there, there were no no needy persons among them. How about that? No needy persons among the first century church. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, and that's the famous Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And so we learn that the congregation was of one heart. They were all committed. They were all recognizing that whatever they owned, whatever they had, it was God's property. They were stewards of God's property, and you know, I always speak about that when people ask me about tithing—is it net, or is it the net, or the gross? And I laugh and I say, "It's all His. It's all His." And so the question is, how much of His are you going to keep? Uh, and the first-century church understood this. Uh, and so you see that we demonstrate to the outside world, the unsaved world, how much we love God and how much we love one another in the way that we deal with one another. This is exactly what Jesus told us to do. This is how we advance the gospel of God. And so the first fellowship was both in practice and, pr- and practical, the very testimony of Jesus Christ. They were preoccupied with ministering to each other. They had no concern about their own needs and their own desires. And what an example that is to me as to how we walk with Jesus Christ. This is a humility that comes from Jesus Christ. This is the way Jesus wants us to live, to bow ourselves in humility before the throne of God and say, God, what do you want me to do with everything that you've given me? What do I do with my talents and my gifts? And my possessions, are all yours, Lord, and lead me to understand what your will is. And so the apostles, under this backdrop, continue to preach with incredibly great power about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And let me say this, that if we stand for nothing else in this church, we stand for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You understand? That's it. That's the bottom line. That's the line in the sand. That's what we stand for. That's the message that the world has to understand. That only one man defeated death. Only one man walked out of a grave. And so they didn't care, you see. They didn't care about offending the Jewish elite. They weren't worried about their standing or where they were. They weren't worried about country clubs or what tables they could sit at. You understand? All they cared about was Jesus Christ and god poured blessing after blessing after blessing and so here's the lesson for you today unbelievers must be offended because of their sin don't worry about that that you're going to offend somebody god understands this sin is an offense and so our job is to let the world know that sin can only be answered by jesus christ and so this was a fellowship that shared in everything Uh, Their selfish, unselfish unity is an example to us in the practical disposition of their own possessions. They recognize that everything that they owned belonged to God. And I pray that we all come to understand that. That everything that God has done for you, don't say it's because you're smart or because you're you're good looking or because you have a wonderful personality uh, or because you worked hard. I give you credit for that, but you could never do anything unless God had blessed you. And I thank God that I had parents that taught me that lesson early on because I needed that lesson taught to me. Because early on when I was in my twenties, I was full of myself that God was blessing my law firm and it was growing and I was bringing in Fortune 500 companies and I would go to my parents' house and I know many of you have heard it, but it's appropriate for this message. And I would say to my parents at breakfast time, well, I did such and such, and I did such and such. And remember, I'm like 30 years old, and my father would say, thank God. And then I would go on, and I said this, I did this, and I did that, and my father would go, thank God. And this went on for about 10 minutes. Finally, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm out there killing myself. I don't have any connections. Don't I get any credit? Whoa, wait a minute. You want credit? Well, could you have done what you had done if God didn't give you health? Well, no. And could you have done with what God is doing for you? Could you have done that if God didn't allow you to get an education? Well, no. And could you have done what you have done if God didn't bring you opportunities and you had people here in this house praying for you? Well, no. And so by the time he got done, and I walked out of that house, I was like a midget. <laughs> I couldn't even reach up to open the door to get out. But these were the lessons that remained with me forever. These were the lessons that I reflected on. It's not me. It's not, it's not myself. It's God. And it applies to every single person one of you. Everything that you have, wherever you are, even the fact that you have been brought to Naples, Florida, is because God allowed you to do this. Uh, And so we have to recognize this in a powerful way. And and God gave us instructions through scripture about our responsibility. Look at James chapter 2 verse 15. It's on the board. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes And daily food, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? What good is it if we don't advance the physical needs of those who need advancement or protection? That's the call that we have uh, as a church and as a people. And so the result of this practical demonstration of love is that in the Jerusalem church, there was not a single needy person. Now, let's understand something. There were people, historians tell us, who most likely lost their jobs when they joined the church and became committed Christians. Let's recognize this. This is a 100% Jewish community, and yet there was not a needy person because the church came up together to take care of those who lost their jobs and needed help. And so you see this. It becomes an important lesson for us. But it also becomes an important lesson about pattern giving to the local church. We have a responsibility, each and every one of us, to give to the local church. It's where everything starts. It's the local church. And God has put in charge of the local church spiritual leaders who report directly to God, who are responsible to God for the dispensation of that money and the dispensing of the funds. And God holds them as a charge. And so our responsibility is to give Their responsibility is to dispense within the will of God. Uh, And this is precisely the delegated authority to ordain leaders. And that's exactly what took place in that church. But look at what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And that's such a great lesson. Don't go on parade. Don't lift yourself up, oh, I'm so great in the kingdom of God. Bow your head, bow your head in humility as you give to the work of God. The privilege, the privilege and honor of giving to God's work. And now, with that backdrop having been said, Satan puts his nose under the tent in the church. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Unlike Barnabas, who gave the entire proceeds of the sale, Ananias decided to keep some back for himself. Yes, he gave some, but he kept some back because he saw an opportunity to make a double profit. What do I mean by that? A double profit. I will get the spiritual prestige as if I gave all to God, and yet I will have the financial benefit of keeping some for myself. He lied to the church. He lied to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this is a very serious thing. And so withholding part of the money, you see, was not a sin. He could have done that easily and said to the apostles, we're giving you 50% of what we sold. This is our donation. That wouldn't have been a sin, but the sin wasn't saying we are giving all to the work of God, when in fact that was a lie, a lie to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and you see, uh, the, the Scripture speaks clearly about this in Second. Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things... At all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He will give you all things, all things, as you give abundantly to Him. That's the way we are to live. That's how God wants you to live. And so the overt sin here uh, was publicly pretending uh, to give all of the sale proceeds, it was religious hypocrisy of the very highest order. Uh, And it was a sin to get spiritual status. Now, Jesus spoke out clearly about this uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. He, He publicly denounced the Pharisees who routinely and regularly did this, feigning high spiritual status. And so any sin against the fellowship of the believers is a sin against Christ. Let me repeat that. Any sin against the fellowship of believers is a sin against Christ. And so some people wonder, based on this, uh, were Ananias and Sapphira genuine believers? Were they saved? And I think after reflection, I think they probably were. They were part of of the first century church. They were there when the Holy Spirit descended on that church and they were concluded in the congregation of those who believed, according to Acts, as it referenced that statement. Second, they were involved with the Holy Spirit, thus indicating a relationship to the Holy Spirit. Third, if they were not Christians, what is the point of this lesson? What's the point of this story? What is God teaching us if, in fact, they were not Christians? Because I believe God judged them because... They had a responsibility as Christians. Fourth, Satan can become personally involved with believers. Let me repeat that. Satan can become personally involved with believers. It doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation but you will lose your testimony. You will lose your power in the kingdom of God. You will lose the influence that you have. In every possible way, this is important for you to understand and reflect on. And you see it in this story. And so Ephesians 6, verse 12, according to Paul, says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. The principalities of evil in the air, surrounding us in every possible way. When God threw Satan out of heaven, one-third of the angel force went with him. And those angels today are demons, and they surround us in every part of the world, in every government of the world, in every power position of the world. They are there, and they are out to destroy you. Uh, in, in, in an amazing way. And so in this case that we're going to study today about Ananias and Sapphira, I believe death can be a divine chastening for a believer. Uh, and look at 1 John, the epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. You see it on the board. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray And God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. In other words, the sin that leads to death is lying to the Holy Spirit. Lying to the Holy Spirit. And I I want you to know that I've had some personal experience with this in my own family. And I can give you a testimony about this. My father had six brothers and one sister. And they were raised in a godly family. His father was a missionary and a pastor. Uh, And you know my father was a pastor himself for 55 years from the same pulpit. And yet, two of his brothers were recalcitrants. They didn't accept Jesus Christ. They didn't walk with the family. They did their own thing. They were outside of the will of God. One was 58 years old and one was 48 years old. When they were both struck down within the same day with a very unique and specific form of cancer. How about that? And over the next 14 to 16 months, they would become Christians. God would use that illness to bring them and direct them and to change their lives and they would become Christians and they would express their their love for Christ in a powerful way and yet, and here's the story, within three days of each other, they would be called home. They would die. Now why would God do that? Why would God do that? Well, I'll tell you what I believe, what I saw That the younger brother had already uh, made plans to go back into the city of Newark and buy a bar and go back and open a bar. You think this is what God wanted him to do as a saved Christian? Go back into that old life? And he saw that. And so within the will of God, death is a chastening for a Christian. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. We are trifling with God. Do you think God has saved you and called you out from this world so that you can go back and live a wasteful life? There's no way God wants it. He loves you so much. He has such great plans for you. Now, I'm not saying you're losing your salvation, but God sees where you're headed. He will not allow the gospel to be dragged through the mud. He will not allow it. And you see this here about that. So Peter focuses now on this specific sin with great spiritual perception. Nobody told Peter about this, but look at Acts chapter 5 verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. You've lied to God. What made you do this? This was a totally unnecessary sin. You didn't have to give it all. God didn't make you give it all, but you couldn't lie to God and tell him I gave it all when in fact I didn't give it all, looking to have high religious uh, visibility. This deceit did not fool Peter, and he was guided by the Holy Spirit. Uh, who had given him perception on this thing. He saw through the very hypocrisy of Ananias. I'm sure Ananias was stunned by these words. He probably said, "My only my wife knew this. How did you know this? Uh, and so the giving of Ananias was satanically inspired. Not spiritually inspired, By Barnabas, but satanically inspired. And that's what God does. That's that's what Satan does, rather, as he infiltrates the church and puts his tentacles in the church. This was a completely unnecessary sin. They were under no compulsion to sell anything or to give everything away. His sin originated with his own selfish hypocrisy. And so we learn two things here uh, in Peter's uh, message to Ananias. First, it affirms that the Holy Spirit is a person. You're not lying to a force. You're lying to a personage. And secondly, we learn that the Holy Spirit is a deity, is God itself. Because as as Peter said, you have lied to God. And the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead. And so in chapter 5 of Acts, verse 5 to 10... We read as follows, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened, you think? Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. Can you imagine the power of the Holy Spirit in that church where the words like that would be immediately implemented by God? At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. The ultimate cause of both of their deaths was God's judgment. You know, this verse doesn't put fear in my heart, but this verse really serves to tell me how much God loves us. This is God's church. He will not allow this church to be destroyed. He will not allow this church to be waylaid. It's His church, and He will determine judgment to those offenders who seek to destroy the church. And may we constantly look at the cross and be guided by the cross, knowing that this is his church. And so it's a very sobering thing to understand that God sometimes takes the lives of sinning believers. And let me say this. It's not typically the way Ananias and Sapphira were dealt with, that they walked into church and they were carried out. But sometimes it can be years later. Years later, but God's timeline exists. God's timeline exists. And so death is God's ultimate form of physical discipline for sinning believers. He wants His church pure. As a result of these two deaths, great fear came upon the whole church. You think? Can you think? And let's understand something. It wasn't just fear within the church itself. It was fear from outsiders who looked at what was going on in the church. They saw what was going on in the church. And can you imagine recognizing, oh, their God doesn't fool around. This is a powerful God. This is a holy God. Uh, And so you see how God deals with the church and the message that he gives to the world about his church. God will not allow his church to be trifled with. Now, when I say his church, I don't necessarily mean every building, every denomination. I'm talking about the universal church of God. You understand? Those believers who are following God and walking with God. That's what I'm talking about. And so, no doubt, no doubt, serious self examination took place in the life of the early church believers. And that's what God wanted. He wanted them to seriously have self-examination. Uh, and so their deaths carried not only fear within the congregants of the church, but even those outside it. Peter was later to write of this very principle in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God. You understand? God is sifting, and he's refining, and he's refi- and filtering, and it starts here. It starts with us. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to be true. He wants us to be pure. He wants us to walk with him. He wants us to demonstrate to the world this is the, the life of Christ that we're trying to live. This should serve as a powerful warning to all of us today, and to the world itself. This is God's church and he demands that it be pure and he demands that it be holy and these people wanted to buy influence uh, and they wanted to lift themselves up in religious hypocrisy and God repudiates religious hypocrisy. He did it every day of his life with the Pharisees. Uh, They sought to serve themselves and not to serve God. Look, this is God's judgment on his own people Do not live a counterfeit life. Do not live a counterfeit life. Live a life that is pure and holy and walk with him as you bow before him in every possible way. Amen, church? Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for the words that you have given us today. I thank you for this message. I thank you, Father, for how zealous you are in elevating your church and how you demand that your church be pure, Father, and how you will root out evil from your church. And so, Father, as we bow before your throne, we ask you in every way to lift up, lift up his people, protect his people, draw them closer to you. Let us live every day, Lord, closer to you and walk to the cross as we demonstrate what a life committed to Jesus Christ means to a lost world. Let's be with our people and protect them and bring them back next week as well so that we can continue in worshiping you as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I bless you.